It's normally one of the last events on the second last day on the track, and it's so exciting. You've seen it, I'm sure. Four runners, each taking a 100-meter leg of the track, carrying a single baton that must be passed on from runner to runner in order for them to finish the race. And I was reading up a little bit on this week in my research uh, and, and finding out that the passing of the baton has, there's quite a coaching manual for it, would you believe, uh, that, that it requires some very careful technique. As runner one approaches this changeover box, it's his job to yell to runner two, who should be looking forward, get moving, or whatever you want to say, go. And then at this point, runner two is supposed to just reach back with hand open wide and somehow, in reaching back, keep the thumb up. That's all they've got to do at that point. It is then the responsibility of runner number one to make sure the baton slaps into the hand of runner number two. And the the thing that makes this race so exciting, I think, is that victory can be won, even in the changeover. If the baton is dropped, or if the exchange is sloppy, you'll have no hope of victory. And many an athlete has said, including the great Carl Lewis, a race is not won because you ran faster than anyone else, but because you passed the baton on well. I think that really race and the passing of the baton presents for us and serves as a good analogy of the church's responsibility in passing on the baton that is the gospel. On passing on the baton that is sound doctrine from Christ to his disciples, from his disciples to those who followed all throughout the ages, this this gospel baton has been passed on and we Charlotte Chapel have currently, are currently running our leg of the relay. The question that hangs, I think, with every runner and with every church is, will the baton then make it through the next exchange? It's an important question to consider. And it's actually quite a pertinent one. You might think, well, that's a, that's a void question, really. But there, there is, it is evident, I think, in our nation, given the church decline that we see, given the theological confusion that we see, not only in churches, but even in theological establishments, and even the fact that there are just so few gospel workers for the harvest field. Some are making no effort whatsoever to be intentional in passing the baton on and in training up others to serve. Some sadly have dropped the baton, I believe, altogether. The question is for us then, how can we faithfully play our part in passing this baton on to the next generations, even to the people of this city who do not yet know that they need to receive the baton? Well, this has been the subject really of our studies in the last few Sunday mornings, hasn't it? Let's have the vision on screen again. Should be there. Our vision, mission, goal, of course, is that we glorify God. That's our vision. Our mission to make disciples and the great goal of all nations. And we're going to deal with the all nations aspect of it next week. So I'm going to concentrate mostly on this 
send element. We had a couple of weeks ago from Andy what it is to reach out to the lost with the gospel. Last week with Paul on building up the saved with the gospel. And today we think uh, and concentrate on sending out the train with the gospel. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read from verse 35 to chapter 10 and verse 4 to begin with. Matthew chapter 9. And if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 974. And before we read, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have put your word in our hands to teach us, train us, correct us, rebuke us. Uh, We pray that you would serve us and teach us, Lord, as we study your word just now. Uh, Help us to be obedient to your commands and to, again, marvel at your saving work. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. The first, first Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Amen. This is God's word. So, uh, here's what we want to do. Let me map this out for you in four things that we're going to look at today. Uh, First of all, the need that Jesus sees. The need that Jesus sees. Secondly, the example that Jesus sets. Thirdly, the pattern Paul adopts. And fourthly, the vision that Charlotte Chapel pursues. So first of all, the need that Jesus sees. Uh, The desperate situation is before us. As Jesus goes through the towns and villages, preaching the gospel. As he goes around doing good, healing their diseases and their sickness. He is, has the crowds before him and he looks upon them with great compassion. They are like sheep without a shepherd. That's, that's the situation that the people find themselves in. A desperate situation. They are sheep without a shepherd. Now, Andy's sermon on reaching out with the gospel really dealt with the predicament of the lost. And I'm not going to go into this in any great detail. But suffice to say, verse 36, again, we see their awful plight. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Really, without a shepherd, sheep die. 
They are very vulnerable animals and shepherds are necessary to lead them to good grazing, even to keep them from straying off into danger and certainly to fend off any uh, predators that come along. And Jesus' perception, as he sees them, he sees them as being harassed and helpless. So in other words, they're an agitated people and they are troubled. And we know fine and well that since Jesus presents the gospel as the cure for their ills, the, the real problem is that they are rebelling against God and they are sinners. And he says that they are helpless, which actually in the Greek originally is cast down. Sheep have this, they're pretty docile really. They have this funny thing where you can actually, if you can even today drive along a country road and you can see a sheep that's cast down. Here's what happens. Sometimes there's a little divot in the ground, a little, a little dent. And what a sheep likes to do is just have a wee lie down in there and, and get a little bit cosy. And then what they do is to, to try and get a little bit more comfortable, they can move themselves so far around onto their back in this little indentation that they can't actually get out. How stupid can you get? I'm just going to have a lie down. I can't get up. I'm going to die. That's essentially it. <laughs> For a sheep being cast down. Okay? They get themselves into some really terrible situations. And we're no different. That's what Jesus sees when he looks on the lost. And I wonder if that's what we see when we look in our city. People who look like they've got it made. Some might be making big bucks in the financial district. Others might just be playing happy families in the suburbs, you know, playing football with their kids. And it might all look pretty and delightful. It doesn't need to look like the brothels on Lothian Road. It doesn't need to look like some of the, the, the drug problems in the estates. Agitated. Harassed. Helpless. Jesus was moved deeply by their predicament, so should we be. The analogy flips, though, to show us not only this, uh, this desperate situation, but a hope-filled opportunity. Jesus moves from talking about sheep and shepherds to talking about a harvest and workers. Uh, verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, there are so many people here who are ready to be brought in and could be brought in. These people might be in a terrible danger, but they're not without hope, you understand. And here's the problem, though. It's inherent in what Jesus says, that is, uh, time is finite and resources are limited. And if the crop isn't harvested, it will spoil and it will just be burned. The glaring issue is, as we see what is needed to bring in the harvest is harvesters, laborers for the harvest field. What's the problem? Verse 37. The workers are few. The workers are few. It's there. It's ready. There is a harvest just waiting to be reaped. What's the problem? The workers are few. Christ doesn't leave us wondering what the solution is, does he? No, he tells us the solution. The master's solution is Therefore, as in verses 37 to 38, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Do you pray for harvest workers? Do you pray for laborers? Do you pray for gospel workers? For the harvest field of Edinburgh? For the churches that could be planted? For the churches that could be revitalized and re-energized? Those that might be despairing and might need some help? Do we pray for these things? Or do we just pray for whatever concerns Charlotte Chapel? 
there's a lot to pray for for Charlotte Chapel, isn't there? We all have genuine concerns and cares for the church and for how we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and in his likeness and holiness and so on. But surely we should never do that to the neglect of the harvest field or to the neglect of the master's instruction to pray for gospel workers, pray for harvesters. We should pray for these very things. Allow the concern of Christ to be our concern and so realize as well that as we pray, we align ourselves with God's purposes, we share his heart and as we pray for laborers, actually we should expect that God will work in our hearts to go into the harvest fields ourselves. Jesus is eager to show us his concern, his heart for the lost and his solution. And he will go to a cross to die for these people so that, so that they can have real hope. Hope not just in this life through salvation in Christ, but hope of eternal life that is to come. And he will make it the job of his followers to proclaim this truth to the very ends of the earth. Now, if you're here today, you're not a Christian. Uh, this is a great passage in which you can actually see Christ's concern for you that he would look upon you in your situation again you might be going through a difficult time or you might just be going through quite a happy time and you've no idea why you're here today maybe just someone brought you well, what you see in this little section in Matthew 9 is Jesus' concern for you that actually you are like sheep without a shepherd you're in danger you're in danger from the predators of evil essentially because you do not have the good shepherd the chief shepherd Jesus Christ himself caring for you and giving you good grazing and feeding you that which will really give you life and not bring death do you see the helplessness of your situation like the sheep that was cast down the encouragement for you to, is to read the rest of Matthew's gospel today and see what Jesus did to actually make it possible for you to follow him and have life. He died on the cross for your sin. And three days later rose again from the dead. To show that that sacrifice three days before worked. It was, that sin was paid for. And by believing in him you can have life just as he has life. So don't miss that. If you're here today you're not a Christian. Don't miss that at all. And brothers and sisters let's not miss the need that Jesus sees. As we look out on our city, as we look out on the nation of Scotland and the UK, even as we look beyond to the nations. What a great need we see. The second thing is the example that Jesus sets. It's quite simple, really. It's train up and send out. It's that simple. And I love the way Matthew, Matthew's very clever, the way he presents uh, the, the account of Jesus' life. In, in chapters 1 and 2, this is how he was born. In chapters 3 and 4, this is how he was called to ministry and anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he shows us, okay, this is what Jesus taught. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount in particular? This is what the kingdom of God is, in other words. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he starts to show us, this is what Jesus did so in word and deed this is what the kingdom of God actually looks like when it's lived out so Matthew's been very very careful to show us 
this is what the kingdom of God is and this is what the kingdom of God looks like when it's lived out. And then as we come to 9.35 and following, it's a real turning point into chapter 10. It's as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm not the one who's going to do all of this. Uh, you are. Um, the, the harvest is plentiful. And here's the thing. You guys are the gospel workers. It's as if Jesus says, <coughs> excuse me, I have taught you what, what you should know. And I have now shown you what you should do. Now, you go and do it. You go and do it. I'm recruiting and training you as gospel workers. Pray for gospel workers. And by the way, you are a gospel worker. And Jesus could say the same, very same thing to us. We can take that as applying to us as well. But what we have here before us is just the heart of training. Jesus being intentional about who he recruits. And he doesn't just call out those who, for example, are experts by any stretch. They might not even show that much potential, actually. There are a few uh, uneducated Galilean fishermen. There's even a taxman in there. But Jesus identifies them, recruits them, and trains them. And amazingly, as we see, as he actually sends them out later on into chapter 10, their ministry is very carefully presented by Matthew as actually the same as Jesus' ministry, to a large degree. So the words of chapter 4 and verse 23 that describe Jesus' mission are repeated again in chapter 9 and verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Then the very same words, if you look over to Matthew chapter 10 and verses 7 and 8, uh, the, the words are pretty much there again. What Jesus had done, they are now being called to do uh, as you go preach this message the kingdom of heaven is near heal the sick raise the dead cleanse those who have leprosy drive out demons in other words Jesus is presenting for them a job description which is very much been uh, a, which is very much a carbon copy of his own now at this point at this point of course their ministry and their mission is restricted but still this this is training for them this is preparation for the wider mission that would be theirs truly after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And when they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So even now, and even as you, if you have a chance to read through Matthew chapter 10 later on today, you'll see that they, they have some success. But there are other, element, other passages which tell us that they, they're, they're, they don't quite get it. They don't quite do it very well. But at least they're involved in ministry from the very start. So what we have is the, the need that Jesus sees, the harvest field, white, ready for harvest. The example Jesus sets, train up and send out. And I think the third thing we see, the pattern that the church adopts is similar. Train up, send out. This pattern of passing the baton, train up and send out, as you would expect, is carried over from Jesus to the early church. And I think Paul's strategy in particular in recruiting, training, and sending gospel workers can be quite easily traced through the book of Acts. And I think is most obvious for us, if you want an example of it, you can look to Timothy and look to Paul's letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy. Why don't you turn over just now to 2 Timothy chapter 2.
Now, Paul took Timothy under his wing, basically at the recommendation of a church in Acts 16, 1 to 3. And again, Paul's training, I think, reflects Christ's training. In other words, he said, I have taught you what you should know, and I've shown you how you should live. Uh, so I've, I've lived a life before you, and I've taught what you should know. And uh, as Paul has taught and modeled what it is to, to live out the Christian life, uh, he, he says, uh, has said to Timothy... Uh, over in chapter 3, verse 10, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, love, endurance, and other things. You've seen me. You've seen what I do. And then Paul is so intentional in passing this pattern on. In 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, we read, You then, my son, be strong. In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So there's what fuels gospel work. There's what drives us. That's what makes gospel workers able to carry on and do the work. We're strengthened by grace. That precious, precious gift that we could never deserve. A a gift that keeps coming. A gift that we can rely on and make a foundation for ministry. The grace that is in particularly Christ Jesus. And the things, Paul continues, you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, don't miss the relay team here. Okay, let's have the next one on screen. Should be an arrow here. Paul's just shown us in a few words how the gospel moves through four generations, basically, how the baton is passed on. He's shown us how the gospel is passed from Christ to Paul. Even in our studies in Galatians, we've seen that Paul received the gospel at a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it moves from Paul to Timothy. And then Paul is saying uh, from Timothy, this gospel should be passed on to faithful men. And what is Timothy specifically instructed to do here? Well who will also be qualified to teach others. In other words, they have to pass it on to other people also. So identify, recruit, train up, send out. I'm laying all of this before you repeatedly to show you that it's part and parcel of the church's work. It's what Christ has called his church to do. It is the practice of the early church Throughout the ages, it has been the way that the baton has been passed on. The question then is, is this the vision that Charlotte Chapel wants to pursue? In many ways, we have been pursuing it for over 200 years, actually. And I give thanks for the many, many years of of fruit that we have seen in faithfulness. But I think given the extent of the harvest field in Edinburgh and Scotland, not to mention the nations, maybe now is a time in our current context to see that we're maybe more like the first century church in Acts than we realize. Given the number of people who do not know Christ, the number of people who have not heard a passage of the Bible read or know what the gospel is. What is our vision in training in Charlotte Chapel? What should it look like? Well, I think in the first instance we should see, if you go into the next slide, this is number four, the vision Charlotte Chapel pursues. The first thing is that for a training mindset truly to pervade the church, 
This is just understanding quite plainly and simply. Every worker, every believer in the church is a gospel worker. And, and what we're called to hear is really what Paul was looking at last week. Again, it's, there's a little bit of overlap of all three of these things, you understand. But this is intentional discipleship. A mission intentionality. Our great aim for one another's lives should be for us to see one another grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. More into his likeness. In other words, not only believing the gospel, but really applying the gospel. And seeing how we are changed by the gospel day by day and better equipped to share that gospel with those who don't know it. But we should have this deep, deep interest to have this training mentality pervade every area of a local church. So even taking home groups, for example, or fellowship groups. It tends to be the case that our fellowship groups are led by our elders and, and maybe one or two others. But what an opportunity there for those who lead Bible studies on those occasions to identify one or two people that might be trained up to lead the Bible studies as well. Where we might intentionally say with them, okay, uh, I'll do this, you watch. Then, then you do it and I'll watch. And then in the end, maybe they can go off at some point in the future. If not, just getting more opportunities, even in our small groups, to lead Bible studies themselves in a church that, say, Charlotte Chapel is planted. We should be training people up in every respect. Recognising this in our home groups. That... Even our fellowship groups are, are, are a great place for training. They're not there for us to be self-serving. You understand that? Uh, our, our fellowship groups are not there for our benefit primarily. Actually, they're there for God's glory primarily. We do gain benefit for them, but from them, but they are for his glory. And I think we need to be wary of, of, of this in some sense, that some of our, our, our fellowship groups can sometimes feel like, a, like the, the, the whole point of them is that they should be something like a, a business class lounge at the airport. You know where you can have... I, I don't know this, obviously. <laughs> a couple of hours reprieve from the riffraff of the economy traveller, you know, that kind of thing. And that is until you have to re- return to the real world. I think, our, I think our home groups can sometimes be like that there. We think that they're all just about having comfort and enjoying our time together. Those things are good. I'm not negating those at all. But I just think, I wonder if, as as we see a training mentality woven into every area of the church's life, perhaps our home group should be more like a a wartime strategy room. You know, the, the Lord's troops should certainly have their wounds taken care of. But surely, fundamentally, we should be equipping one another for the fight that we are immersed in and thinking seriously about whether or not, and and encouraging one another, how can we be better at obeying the commander's intent about following his will. This this, this should pervade every area of the church. For, For our Sunday school teachers to have someone that they're training up, this is how you teach the kids. Again, giving you opportunities to do it. It's plain and simple. We see it in many, many areas and many, many professions. And we should certainly see it in the church. So what can you do? Well, maybe if you're a leader in a ministry of some sort, have you identified someone that you might, you might 
recruit and intentionally say to them, Actually, I think you'd be really good at doing this. Do you want to take time to figure this out together? Can I show you what I do? Maybe you can learn from me and we'll give you opportunities to put it into practice. I'll give you some feedback and let's see how it goes. Who knows how the Lord will use this? I mean, what about even the possibility of of that training mindset, helping you think through how you can actually send people, so fellowship groups. Why don't you send two of your people to the next Christianity Explored course or to Robin Turton? He's brilliant. You know, and just get him to train you up on how to do Christianity Explored so that maybe by next year we might not have two or three courses running, but with our home groups in their geographical locations, perhaps we could have 19 or 20 running at the one time. Maybe that's how we might start to reach even 10% of this city. Train up. Send out. We need to train everyone. We want to be better Christians. We want to be better able to share the gospel. That's why we have two ways to live training courses. And at time out, the ladies at time out are about to do two ways to live as well. And Robin's doing that. And then... Who else? YPM, about to do it as well. It's great. We want to train people up to better reach out with the gospel. And train everyone as a gospel worker. But we want to train, secondly in this section, men and women for particular gospel work. This city, this nation needs faithful pastors who are well trained. Faithful pastors who are well trained. Again, the, the scarcity of, of available pastors is incredible. I don't know what the situation is now, but even as an example for you, when I was in St. Andrew's Baptist Church, like three or four years ago it was, there was a, 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 an announcement made basically from the Baptist denomination in Scotland which said we currently have about 160-odd churches. Uh, there are 46 vacant churches, and the college or the applications that they are seeing they're only receiving like three a year. And uh, it doesn't take a mathematical genius to say, well, that's not going to work. There is a scarcity of workers, even in churches, that could be revitalized and re-energized. But there just aren't people for the job. In many places, they've got the money and the resources there. There just aren't people for the job. And we need to be serious in thinking through how do we train up and send out people who pastors, faithful men of God who will correctly handle the truth and care for the flock that is entrusted to their leadership and their care. And even still, as we think through seriously about church planting, we need to train up men for that. But we also need to train up others for evangelistic work. We need to train up women for women's work. Such an invaluable ministry that is. There are a whole host of different opportunities. Even in, in biblical counseling. People who, will, people who will be able to engage with people and deal not just with the mind and changing behavior but changing the heart where the root issues are. Where are they going to be trained? There are a few places. But are we being intentional even in the first step of identifying them, encouraging them, training them well and sending them out? There seems to be 
I think even in Scottish churches, and I'm talking cross-denominationally here, a real passivity about finding, recruiting, training up pastors and planters for the harvest field. It's most of the folks who do go into ministry are almost selecting themselves. And that doesn't always work. <laughs> and this is why we're running things like a ministry apprenticeship program. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it's a start. It's about intentionally taking people and seeing, okay, you think you're called to this? Well, let's see. We, we think you might be called to a particular ministry context or area. Well, let's see. Come and engage with us. Let's work on character. Your walk of godliness, that's so important. Your conviction, what you actually believe, that will both shape who you are as a Christian and what you teach as a gospel worker. And then competency. Let's actually help give you the skills and see if you can do this. I hope that that develops. I've done my figures. And how many people I would like to see churned out, churned out through our ministry apprenticeship program and sent out. Whether they're planting churches in Edinburgh or being sent out to pastor churches here in Scotland or sent out across the world to take the gospel to the nations that need it or the unreached people groups who still have not heard. Do you have a vision like that to see us develop something like our ministry apprenticeship program even into like a pastor's college in years to come? Whoa, where did that come from? I'm serious. We need to take this training up and sending out really seriously and we need to take church planting very, very seriously. If church planting is not about training up and sending out, I don't really know what is. I think this, this is, the Great Commission was given to a church to go and plant churches and I, I, and I think it applies to us today. And, and I know we've just voted to progress with a move to a new building project that will, Lord willing, demand great sacrifice from us. But we'd be crazy to think that that's all we need to do. It would be it would be carelessness. It would, it would actually be bordering on irresponsible. Our vision must be wider. It must be bigger. That church, I believe it, will serve us well. It will serve us superbly well, I believe. But it cannot be all we do. It has been this church's privilege to plant churches in the past. Even just at the beginning of this year. What a delight to, to send off. Nidri Community Church into their independence and to see the work that's going on there. It's a delight, isn't it? But we need more. And we need more. And maybe we need to do it more quickly. And that's going to take people. It's going to take resources. It's going to take finances. We need to train up and identify planters, Pastors, those who will, who will lead the charge, if you like, into the, the lost people of this city and the places where there is no gospel outreach at all. We need gospel workers who will be trained up well, even through things like Two Ways to Live and Christianity Explored and the Portabrook material we use on a Wednesday morning, which, by the way, everybody can come to if you want to come to it. It's not just for apprentices. We all need to be thinking this through. And even as, even as a church, even as a body of believers, to say, right, we're going to send 30 people, right? You first four rows there, you're going. That's not a prophecy, by the way. 
you know, it's part of training up and sending out. Trusting God that he will multiply the workers and that we will see the harvest brought in. It's about developing this kingdom mindset, isn't it? It's not just about maintaining the thing that is Charlotte Chapel. My goodness, we've got it wrong, if that's what we think it is. It's about the nations. And it starts with our city. And that's the work we have to do. Sending is hard. Training up and sending out is hard, okay? It's actually quite painful. Some of you are sitting around saying, some of those people in the first four rows are like my best friend in the church. You know, we feel the pain of sending people out. We might have built real relationships with people. We can't send out that guy in the Sunday school. He's the best guy we've had in like 30 years. But still we do it. We should send our best. We shouldn't sigh with worry. Because the Lord multiplies the ministry by training up more and sending out again. And it's all worth it. If we have a reluctance to think through, well, can we, can we do this? Can we, can we train people up and send them out? Should we, should we engage in that? Some days we just need to go back to reading Revival and Rose Street. How did this church start? Well, it started initially because a guy called Christopher Anderson heard the Haldanes preaching the gospel faithfully. And then as he thought about going out to Serampore with Carey, was advised by his mentor who took him under his wing, Andrew Fuller, and encouraged him, go and plant a Baptist church in Edinburgh. Praise God. And the many years of faithful witness throughout the generations of this church, and we are responsible for passing the baton on so that they're going to have a great time when they celebrate the 300th anniversary. We need to recognize the people of our city harassed and helpless. And we need to go to them. And I think, I like Philip Jensen as he talks about this, and Peter Jensen. I think Philip Jensen's been doing this kind of thing for a little over 25 years, I think. And I love his four policies. Number one, policy number one, preach the gospel and pray for gospel workers. Straightforward and simple. Number two, plant churches. Really simple. Number three, actively recruit Train up and send out gospel workers. So have the mindset of, of preaching the gospel and praying for gospel workers and planting churches, but actually actively pursue it and challenge people to consider ministry. Fourth policy, change everything that gets in the way of the first three. I love that. Change everything that gets in the way of the first three. So Charlotte Chapel, what do we need to do? How many gospel workers do we need to send out? How many churches do we need to plant, even in order to reach 45,000 people, never mind the 450,000 people of Edinburgh? Well, if the average church in Edinburgh is made up of around 200 people, we would need 225 churches. Not to mention well-trained pastors, planters and members to go. That's impossible, I hear you say. Some of you are thinking it. Well, between 1831 and 1838, Thomas Chalmers was responsible for training up and sending out pastors and planters as part of a nationwide church planting initiative for the Church of Scotland, 
Do you know how many churches he planted in seven years? 222. And by 1843, literally within 12 years of him starting this training initiative, where he taught, of course, at Edinburgh University, but alongside that was showing guys not just the theology track, but this is what ministry looks like. This is what you should expect. This is what it's going to look like. This is how you persevere. This is how you get this training mentality, not into your own head, but into the head of others that you're going to train up. Within 12 years of the commencement of this training, it was said of Chalmers that he could walk from the northernmost point, John O'Groats, to the southernmost point of Dumfries and Galloway, and every night stay in the manse of one of the men he had trained. That's my vision. That's our vision. Surely, that you can go for a holiday <laughs> in any part of the UK. Oh, and I pray the world. And you can stay with a gospel worker that we've sent out. There's no one doing this, you know. <coughs> Training up pat Well, there are people doing it. That's a bit of an exaggeration. But I think we have a responsibility in Scotland in particular to do this well, to do this right. And I pray that one day I might be able to walk from John O'Groats to the southernmost point of Dumfries and Galloway and stay the night in the house of people we have trained. We glorify God by reaching out to the lost with the gospel, building up the saved with the gospel, and sending out the trained. If this is Christ's concern, it must be ours. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much that we have become the recipients of a gospel baton that has been passed on to us. Thank you so much that the majority of us here today are here because someone has been bold to speak the truth to us and that some of us are in serving in ministry in the church in various ways because someone has taken us under their wing and trained us and shown us what we should do and I pray Lord God that you would make this training mindset to pervade every single one of our minds and every single one of our ministries in this church and that truly we might see the kind of fruit that we desire Gospel workers for the harvest field, congregations to go, churches to be planted, pastors and planters to go, women's workers, biblical counselors, all of these things. And I pray that the thing that drives us would be your command to go and make disciples and a constant awareness of the need that is out there, of the harvest field and the scarcity of workers. Help us in this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for those we've been able to send out and support. We pray for more. Uh, more than we could ever imagine we could do. More churches to plant than we ever imagined we could plant. And this we pray for your glory alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>